Before we start this episode of Getting Personal, we'd like to tell you about a brand we have been loving recently called Wild. Wild is a super exciting company that produce natural deodorants and they are all about sustainability, which we are honestly so here for and we're obsessed. They have a fully sustainable design and the deodorants come in a reusable case that you can refill really easily with biodegradable deodorant refills. Not only is this aluminium and paraben free, which we think is really important, but honestly it actually works and it allows you to go about your day feeling really fresh and really confident and we just love that. I've tried out some natural deodorants, but they came in tins and you had to apply them with your fingers and that was just a mess. But wild, gorgeous cases come in a variety of colours, including coral, like we have, which conveniently matches our signature podcast colour scheme, and you can even get them customised with your name on the lid. What wild scent are you using at the moment, Daphne? I have actually tried, I think, most of the scents, if not all of them by now, but I think my favourite and the one I'm currently using is the orange zest, which is so nice, so fresh and just smells incredible. Mm, I've got fresh cotton and sea salt on the go. And even by the end of the day, I do still feel fresh despite being on my feet all day in the humidity of Hong Kong. One of the other things I also love about Wild is just how easy and convenient it is. Rather than having to run to the shops every time you run out of deodorant, you can set up a subscription on their website, which delivers refills straight through the letterbox whenever you start running low. Go Wild today and get yourself this natural refillable deodorant that genuinely works. You can order by going to wearewild.com and you'll get 20% off your first order when you use the code PERSONAL at checkout. That's wearewild.com and code PERSONAL at checkout for 20% off. Enjoy. As soon as we are out of all these lockdowns and barriers from kind of leaving our houses and actually getting out there, I am so up for getting definitely some dates. <gasps> oh, oh my God. <laughs> uh, I don't know she how wasn't I feel about that. that. <laughs> Surprise. Like, what? This week on Getting Personal, Daphne and I are joined by the wonderful Andy Osho. Andy is an actor and a writer and has recently published her debut novel, Asking for a Friend, which was absolutely brilliant. We love the book and I cannot wait to chat to her about the strong, amazing female characters she has written. Alongside her wonderful book you might also recognize andy from shows such as line of duty and i may destroy you and she also hosts an amazing podcast called creative source with andy osho which is all about working in the arts and creativity and all sorts of different topics and themes such as well-being legacy failure rejection that all tie into those so make sure to go check that out as well Before we get started, we just wanted to let you know that we did have a few small technical difficulties that may have impacted the sound quality in the first few minutes of the episode, but please do keep listening because this was all resolved really quickly. Enjoy! Um, so thanks for coming on. This is really exciting, really cool. Oh, guys. Oh, God, I hope I don't let, let you down. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. No, we're chill. We're super chill. Super we chill. We are very chill. <laughs> um, if to start off with, could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about you? 
Um, well, my name's Andy Osho and I'm a writer and performer. Um, I, gosh, this is always so tricky when you, <laughs> when you have to tell people, because you're like, oh, it sounds like bragging, but you know, I've, I used to be a stand-up comedian, so I've stopped doing that, but I've been on things like Mock the Week and Live at the Apollo and things like that and toured. And then now my main focus is acting. So you might see me in things like Line of Duty and I May Destroy You. Um, and what else? Shazam. I was in Shazam. So I'm in the DC universe now. And uh, yeah, I'm the author of Asking for a Friend, which came out this year. I would love to start with asking you about your book because I absolutely adored it. I think I read it in a day. Um, oh, wow. But I do that quite a lot, actually. I'm a very quick reader. <laughs> but it was I've still- only ever done that once. What book did you finish in a day, Andy? Oh, well, it was a book called, I don't know if you remember it, it's called Sleepers. So it was not, it was literally the antithesis of my book. It was about these kids in like, who end up making this mistake and end up in like basically a juvenile detention center and they get abused while they're there. And it got turned into a film, like Kevin Bacon was in it, but it was just- it was harrowing and gripping and terrible. And I, I mean, it was great writing, but terrible what happened to the, to the characters, but I just ended up devouring this. I was on holiday to be fair. I didn't just like stop working and just go, this is more important. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the only book I've ever read in a day. One of the reasons I connected so much with it was the female friendship. So the three characters, Megan and Jemima and Simi and I just love that because the friendships are so realistic and they're so well written. So kudos to being able to write female friendships that aren't a bit cringe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Because you know what? As, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, gosh, if I, because I didn't set out to write uh, a book about female friendship. I, the dating was the device, you know, that the fact that they go out in real life and ask guys out in person, but for each other, that was the whole, that was the big hook for me. And I think maybe by my focus being on that, it made the friendship a given so that I wasn't trying to manufacture anything. It was just like, well, obviously these girls love each other. Obviously they've been friends for 10 years. Obviously they've been through everything together. And maybe because I, in my mind, that was a given, it made it easier to make it a bit more authentic because that's the feedback I've got from the book is people love the dating side of it, but it's the, the, the friendship aspect has really resonated with people as well. Mm. Um, something I'd love to ask you about is when you released this book, this is your debut novel, if I'm right. Um, and what was it like yeah. putting that out there and like watching people react to it and feeling you know, that you were releasing your work really? Was it quite a vulnerable moment or is it something where you're just like really excited? <laughs> your podcast is about emotions well I went through all of them in <laughs> the lead up and after the book came out because like in the first instance before I don't know if you guys have written but like when before the book comes out I personally was like really excited um because after all that work it was now real you know proofs had started to arrive people had given praise quotes and stuff like that so it was starting to build up this momentum 
And rightly or wrongly, I was sort of inside me. I could feel like this excitement growing. But then when the book was released, what I started to experience was this massive self-doubt. Um, people aren't going to like it. And then, some, you know, early doors, I was looking at Amazon, seeing if people were writing reviews. And the first ones were like sort of really mediocre <laughs> sort of responses. So I was like, ah, oh, the book's terrible. No one's going to like it. This is because I thought that what, what people were writing was what it was going to be. Everyone was going to respond exactly the same way as these first few people. It's literally like five people or something who hadn't, hadn't, they hadn't not enjoyed it, but they hadn't loved it sort of thing. So I was just like, oh, what's the point? All that, you know what I mean? Like, so I just went massively into self-doubt. And yeah, you do feel vulnerable when you first put your work out there, whatever it is you're doing. But I suppose that's when, if people talk about creators being brave, that's, where the bravery comes is constantly putting yourself out there and making yourself available and vulnerable in that way over and over and over again. Um, that was so if we um, go into the emotion of love to start off with, um, especially because of your book, Asking for a Friend, there's a lot of romantic love in it. There's dating, old love, exes, um, but a lot about friendships. And I am really interested to know how your own female friendships have evolved, like changed or even completely ended over the years. Or if you found that like the girls in the book, they've stayed pretty solid or you have like a solid group. Yeah, I mean, my relationship with female friendship has definitely changed and been through diff- many different manifestations over the years. So, I mean, I have to say that <clears throat> it was kind of quite um, a mixed experience from growing up, you know, at school, because I had sort of a group of people who were kind of equally as nerdy and, you know, into studying <laughs> and stuff as I was. So they were my, you know, we've cut, you know, about, you know, finding your tribe and stuff. Well, that's who my tribe was, was just like, we were in a choir and we wanted to do well at school and that wasn't necessarily the coolest thing and all that. But um, I think that I, I suspect that the, the, the environment of school damaged my, trust in women because I went to an all girls school and I, you know, as there is in every school, there's lots of bullying and stuff like that and just teasing and things like that. But I was, I was a really sensitive kid and I just don't think I was really um, prepared for it. I, I, I think I should have gone to school like in the countryside or something where kids are a little bit more innocent. I mean, that's probably like a massive generalization of like kids who live in the country, but you know what I mean? There's something about kids that live in the city that's a bit more knowing sometimes than, than, than not. So uh, I just think that, yeah, that, that had an effect on how I relate to women. And so I remember a boyfriend saying, it's just like, you just don't have any female friends. Like what, why don't you get on with women? And I, I told him a little bit about my experiences at school and just kind of feeling betrayed by certain people as well and sort of who didn't take advantage of my sort of innocence and naivety but it was I mean if I look at it from their point of view it's I was such an easy target but you know from from the perspective of that little kid or not little I was maybe from about 11 to about 14 something like that like it it was just really challenging to be amongst these women where or girls where you didn't the, the the ground underneath you kept shifting because of what it's like uh, between girls of that age anyways. But on top of that, if you're a sensitive kid, it just becomes like 
doubly challenging. So it took a little while actually to sort of find another tribe once I left school, but um, I did. And actually that trio of friendships, uh, trio of women in a friendship in asking for a friend, it was kind of based on um, a friendship that I'd had um, in my twenties where there were three of us and we were just really tight. Um, but unfortunately, um, one of the women kind of betrayed us and she started playing us off against each other and the whole group kind of fell apart. But it wasn't until years afterwards that I discovered that she'd been, she's kind of a pathological liar, really, in a way. Um, you know, telling one friend one thing and then telling the other something else and trying to get, was, she was doing drugs and stuff like that. It was just a really messy thing. And it was only because I met up with the other friend after years and years and years saying, oh, we should, you know, get in touch again. And 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 she's, and I asked her what happened to, you know, I won't say her name, but and then she told me some of the things that she'd said and done. And I was like, you are kidding me. Like, I had no idea that she was, she'd done, she'd basically sort of destroyed the friendship from the inside. People tend to have a very uncomfortable relationship with anger where they feel, mm. you know, ashamed of it, or they don't really like to share that they were angry about something. Um, so I just love to know, you just kind of mentioned that story about um, obviously falling out with some friends and finding out something about one of them that you might not have known before. How do you respond in those kind of circumstances where you do feel angry and what does that emotion look like to you? Well, I mean, in that situation, I wasn't actually angry. I was more kind of shocked and hurt, but in terms of anger, I mean, (laughs) I think I've had to learn to express it in a more, um, let's say, responsible way, because actually what I'm also learning is that anger is not in its in and of itself a bad emotion. There's nothing wrong with expressing anger and actually trying to encourage people to suppress uh, expressions of anger isn't necessarily healthy because it's energy, you know, and it wants to move. And being allowed to be expressed is is good. What is not good is when it's expressed irresponsibly. So, so my journey is learning to because I my default response to a lot of things is anger. It's either big anger or little anger, which you know you might call irritation or something like that. It's like, well, why is that person doing that? Why don't they just blah blah? Me and my mum have the same response to so many things. Like if we see somebody doing something that we think is dumb, it's always like, why don't they just you know fill in the missing blank, uh, missing blank? So um, yeah, it's more just learning to be more responsible with it. But or if you're not responsible, cleaning up after yourself so that you don't damage other people with your anger expression, I suppose. But um, yeah, it's hard because I'm, I'm really having to train myself to just like take a beat and just say what's in your, you know, that's not necessarily going to be the most helpful thing to say right now, but it's, it's an ongoing, not struggle, but you know, it's an ongoing challenge, let's say. Yeah. Handling anger is yeah something we've talked about quite recently with, um, with another guest is it's, it's a completely valid emotion, but it's, yeah, it's how you react to anger and how you express your anger, which can be either healthy or unhealthy. So yeah, it's just a, it's a very tricky emotion to learn to handle yourself, which is why, yeah, it's, we still feel like it's not talked about enough, especially like even on our podcast. Um, into a different kind of emotion. I'd like to ask about fear. When you were on stage doing stand-up, how was that for you in terms of fear? Yeah, it's funny because 
it, it's such a um it's all all the whole experience is happening inside your head because you can go out in front of 3000 people and not be scared and go out in front of 100 and be terrified and it, it's all because of some criteria that has been created in your mind like oh my agent's in tonight and that's why this 25 people gig is terrifying or you know you do that big huge gig and you know that it's a warm audience and you know people are there to see you so you there's no nerves so yeah, it's a really strange experience. But one thing that I've learned, and I always share this with performers who talk, you know, if they ask about fear on stage or stage fright or anything like that, is to think about what the audience experience is. Because I've I've watched other performers, you know, a lot of stand-ups who are nervous, maybe newer stand-ups. And I'm not, even if their material is great, I'm worried about them. As an audience member, I'm thinking, are they okay? <laughs> are they going to make it? You know, and so and so having that experience from an audience's perspective, that tells me who I need to be when I'm on stage to stop the audience having that experience. Just because only for the reason that I want them to hear what I have to say. I don't want them to be worrying for me. I don't want that. that I don't want their attention to be on that rather than the fact that I just said something really funny. I'd love to know what it's like as a performer when you transition from um, being a stage performer and doing these big gigs to going into a set and doing something like Line of Duty or I May Destroy You. Um, What's the difference like there? And is it just as nerve wracking because you're performing in front of, I guess you're acting in front of some very talented, very well-established people in the industry and is there more pressure in that sense? Yeah, you're right. It is different spaces and it definitely, um, you know, it can like product my insecurities and stuff. So <clears throat> I think when I first started acting, which was before stand up, I definitely felt that chronic kind of imposter syndrome. So I would invalidate myself all the time in my head um, when I was on set. And then I started doing stand-up and I think that gave me a degree of confidence that if I had just been acting, probably I would still be indulging that kind of imposter syndrome thing and the fear and the self-doubt. It's not there yet, but I'm, I'm, I feel more secure in myself when I go on set, knowing that I've had this whole experience in stand-up that has you know, kind of not armor plated me and such, but it's just given me a degree of confidence that I, I just think if I just kept plugging away acting, I wouldn't have necessarily got. I've, I've been to the front line, as it were, from a performer's perspective. It's the thing that people fear the most in terms of public performance. Um, and, I've, and I've done it, you know, so, so it's given me a degree of confidence, but I still... And I still doubt sometimes, I still have fear, but I I think what's happened now is that I've learned to sort of embrace it and know that that it, it's, it can be healthy or helpful, should I say, because it keeps me doing everything I can do to make it go the best I can make it go, if that makes sense. Mm. Like if I'm worrying, then I'll do things to sort of make it make, you know, do whatever I can do to make the the performance or whatever go well, i.e. prepare, learn, make sure I know my lines, make sure I know where the character's coming from completely, get a sense of the set or whatever I need to do to take away, to you know, and use that fear as an indicator that maybe, oh, there's some, some other extra things that you could do to make yourself feel a bit more secure and, and comfortable in this situation. 
but you're right. It is, it is, a, it is kind of, I definitely noticed the difference between going between the two spaces. How has um, lockdown kind of affected your creativity as it were, actually? How, like, We've obviously, it's been a very difficult year and a half, two years. How long? How long? <laughs> how, exactly. We've lost track of time. Felt like what, forever. What year are we in? But like, yeah. obviously, um, like there's been a lot more creativity I've seen coming out of my peers and um, other people that you see around in the media. Like they're trying their hands at different things. Obviously, a lot of people have started podcasts like we have. <laughs> like we have. Like but, I have. And we like all, you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think I've been really lucky in the sense of like, I haven't um, felt, um, you know, some people have felt like their creativity has been squashed in some way or that they, they don't feel the inspiration or the spark or whatever. I've really um, relished the space and, um, you know, obviously I wouldn't wish a lockdown because I know it's been challenging for so many people, but for me, it was really useful because, you know, first off I, I pitched um, a book idea and and that got commissioned. And so I was able to use the time to write, um, to, yeah, to write. Um, but also it just felt like possibility because there was so much room. The problem for me was that I, I, it also exposed something in me about, fear of, um, I don't know, not, not being busy, but not, not generating stuff or something. So I kind of went into this overdrive at one point where I was saying yes to everything, no matter what it was, I was sort of judging on awards panels and writing and working on treatments and stuff like that. And it just got out of hand. And I started to get kind of not anxiety attacks as such, but like, it was very stressed. And it was all because of what I had create generated myself because I hadn't had the discipline or the forethought to say, okay, uh, do you actually actually have the time to do all these things? I was just saying yes to everything out of sheer sort of the freelancers panic sort of thing. So um, in terms of creating lockdown was great, but in terms of time management, for me, it was terrible. <laughs> I'd love to touch on a bit the idea of rejection, which I know you've done a blog post where you mentioned it about kind of creative people and the rejection that you have to face. And you've also mentioned it on your podcast. I think it was in your first episodes where you did dive into the whole theme of rejection. For you, what now, I mean, you've spoken a lot about learning to uh, deal with rejection and to embrace it. How has that look like to you and do you ever have moments still where you kind of you get rejected and you think to yourself like this is you know the worst thing ever and you let it get to you is that still something you deal with yeah definitely both are true so you know uh, having I've been in this industry for nearly 20 years and so I've got more than my share of rejection in my you know my back pocket but um and and I when I when I really remember that it's not personal to me there's many other factors involved in whether I get the job or not, that like you say, it happens to literally everybody, everybody at every level. Say in my, if, in, in my um, industry uh, as an actor, you think that, oh, Leonardo DiCaprio is literally just batting away incredible offers, but there will be gigs that he wants that he's just not right for. No matter how much he wants, he's never going to be allowed to play Barack Obama. Do you know what I mean? So like, there's always, <laughs> no matter how much he wants it, it's not going to happen. So we're always, always going to get rejected for stuff. However, it doesn't mean that there aren't days and times where it just, 
you just really, there's a thing that you really want. You want that thing to work out and, and it just doesn't, and it does hurt. But I think as just like all emotions, I think it's just healthy to experience it, let it happen, but just not indulge it. That's what I, I try to do. But I, I know I have done, for example, there was a, a show um, that's, uh, that's that's on Sky that was um, casting for regulars about three years ago, I think it was. And I really, really wanted this job. I really wanted this job and I, and I did, I think a really good job in the audition and it was down to me and somebody else and it just went another way. And because I'd, I was so invested in the idea of this job working out when, when I got the call saying you hadn't got the job, I was devastated. And it took me a good, it really knocked me sideways. Actually, I would say it probably took me a good couple of weeks to get over that because I, I was just so invested. Other times I'm not so much. And I remember, you know, I have a bit more of a, um, a dispassionate relationship with it and I can go, oh, well, you know, that happens. Them's the breaks. Um, uh, some, maybe something else awesome will happen in its place, et cetera, et cetera. And then I move on. Or sometimes I've even forgotten that I auditioned for something and then I get rejected for it. I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> you didn't even need to tell me because I sort of moved on already. So yeah, I go in and out, but I think it, if you do get hooked on the idea of a project working out and it doesn't go your way, I think it's okay to feel sad about it because we're passionate souls, us creatives, and it would be weird if we, we didn't feel strongly about certain projects. That's so true because there would almost be no point in putting yourself out there if you didn't really care about not getting it. And it's just yeah. like talking about rejection in like the creative industry is making me think about the rejection we go through in kind of like every part of our lives that you can get rejected for like job offers or creative opportunities or dating as well. And it's something, Mm -hmm. yeah, like you said, like you're allowed to feel sad about it, but it can't be something that drags you down. But if, um, if we do think about dating, I've been wanting to ask you this (laughs) since I knew you were coming on about when you were at the fringe about asking the audience members out on dates. And I know you spoken about it a lot, including I think on Graham Norton. I am obsessed with that idea and I want to know how they went. Um, Yeah, it was definitely an interesting social experiment. (laughs) Um, How did they go? I mean, I think they went as well as they possibly could given that these guys yeah exactly (laughs) given that these guys came to see a comedy show and ended up going on a date with a stranger so (laughs) with that criteria I think they were pretty damn successful I mean it's funny because there was a part of me it was just like no this is this is just a device for the show and it's just a you know thing trying to approach it like that but actually there was a part of me that's just like wouldn't it be magical if it actually worked out wouldn't it be great if like one of these guys was just like I'm just so glad that this happened. And I'm like, I'm so glad that this happened. And then like, we're just on hello doing a shoot <laughs> for our <laughs> engagement thing. It's was. the perfect story. You know it what is. I mean? Like how amazing would that have been? But what happened was that it was just, you, the thing is, it's really strange because as much as we try to be as a society or parts of society, at least try to be progressive about male, female dynamics, when it comes down to it, we are still quite traditional. And I think that a woman in a position of power, i.e. me being on stage, asking guys maybe felt emasculating in some way because very, in fact, only one guy I think ever volunteered himself. And maybe there was one time when I was crying and maybe another guy volunteered. <laughs> <laughs> I was crying. 
crying on stage. Um, I was moved crying, not crying like, oh, I'm so single. Um, <laughs> I wasn't just like, please, somebody. Um, uh, crickets, crickets in the background and you cry. You know I mean? Yeah, like this show is literally not ending. No one's leaving until someone dates me, you know. So, um, no, I sort of, I was moved by uh, something that, I, that had happened. And, um, yeah, so two people volunteered themselves. Everybody else was volunteered by somebody else, as far as I remember. And I and I think there is a thing of like men wanting to do the asking or something, or at least to participate in the asking <laughs> rather than to be sort of pushed forward by somebody else. So I don't ever think I was ever going to meet somebody that was quite right for me because it was just, you know, friends nudging their brother or their mate or whatever who happens to be with them, nudging them forward rather than a guy actually going, yes, I would like to date that person. Is that Was that kind of like an inspiration for um, the whole, like, asking for a friend how you saw that people were volunteering their mates and you were like oh actually like we know our mates we know our friends really well we know who they're gonna like it it, it probably was subconsciously but actually it was that that came more from um I was out with a, a girlfriend and and she 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 did that for me I was like that guy's really hot please go and <laughs> ask him out for me um and then and that sort of part got parked in the back of my mind and then a few years later that's when I started putting together asking for a friend but I mean all, all experiences feed what we create anyway don't we but I mm. I think that it, if if that did feed asking for a friend it was more subconsciously I'd love to touch a bit on the emotion of happiness, which is obviously one that everyone is so willing to talk about always in comparison yeah, to all the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd love to know, we do with all of our guests this thing that we call bubbles of happiness, where we basically ask everyone what some small things are, especially during lockdown and during mm. the pandemic, during your day that just bring you a bubble of joy and kind of you know, cheer you up or just keep you going really. So what are some things that you do in your daily life that bring you happiness? Um, uh, let's see. I think probably the biggest one is cooking. So I kind of work from home quite a bit anyways, even before the lockdown. And what I've particularly enjoyed or do enjoy anyways, is is cooking at home. And I really love making nice whole food, plant-based stuff. And when I sort of create something new or I've learned a new recipe from somebody or somewhere or just had a guess or something or made something up, I, it's just, just a really nice feeling of just knowing that not only is this really tasty, but it's good for me and uh, the planet and da, 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 da. So that really, I, I get a lot of joy and pleasure from being in the kitchen and just like, you know, sampling new ingredients and things like that. Um, and then also I I started walking a lot more during the lockdown, uh, only recently, probably in the last sort of, I don't know, what, two months or something. But I try and go at least like four or five times a week and just walk around my area. And I'm always so um, taken aback by how uh, how calming that is and how... Um, enjoyable that is of just looking at people's 
houses and just do you know what I mean just going oh nice door like I think that that would be a thing that would give me so much pleasure but just like seeing people take pride in their front gardens or there's a lot of uh, murals around where I live so just like discovering a new one like I saw a new one the other day and I'm just like what that's so high how did they get up oh yeah ladders um, so, um, do you know what I mean like all that sort of stuff and and what I'm learning as I get older is that even though for happiness, I think we often target big life events. Like we think a wedding will make us happy or having a baby or buying a house or whatever, but actually happiness and magic is, is, is much more present in the everyday. If we look, you know, you go for a walk on a, on a sunny Sunday afternoon, which I, I feel always feels a little bit more timeless than weekday, but um, that, that's, that can give you the happiness and pleasure and delight that, those big life events that you think are the, the only ones that can create happiness can give you. So, yeah, I, I like all that simple stuff. I think that's why um, we and our guests like the idea of happiness bubbles so much because it is, it's not, yeah, like you said, it's not the massive moments that are the things that you have to reflect on. It's the little things that, yeah, like give you a little, a little bubble of joy. And that's what keeps yeah. you, keeps you going. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about also your hashtag for asking for a friend of the challenge of getting dates for your mates? <laughs> um, yeah, I didn't know I had a hashtag. Do I have a hashtag? Um, oh, I thought, yeah, like a challenge, like a challenge to... Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I definitely want people to go out and, and do this because I want to kind of shake up that dynamic because like I said, um, we, we are still quite traditional in that respect. And I'm just talking about the sort of hetero dynamic of men asking women out or vice versa or whatever, but, or even any dynamic actually, to be, to be perfectly honest, is like we, the, the idea of somebody just going and asking somebody else out, it's low stakes, but it could generate something that if we just left people to their own devices of asking out who they fancied that they wouldn't get to meet like someone much more interesting or maybe more more suited to who they are so I really want people to go out and do this yeah. and I want them to report back I haven't haven't heard from anybody yet but I guess because we're in a lockdown it's a little bit tricky I think you should definitely if I I, I assume there was a hashtag because there's always seeming to be a hashtag but if not you gotta I'm going to start that. one. you got to yeah, get on I'm, that. i got to get on that. You're I'm right. sure Isabella will be on it with <laughs> all of her posts about where all the dates I'll be going on. All the dates that is going to be going on because I'll be very, I'll be very brave approaching people on your behalf, oh, not God. myself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's it. That's, we can that's... be so much braver than if it's for ourselves. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I definitely can wait. You can wait. You can... <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks for listening to Getting Personal. If you're enjoying our emotional conversations, then please give us a like, subscribe, and don't forget to leave a review. It gives us a boost in the charts, which helps other listeners to find us. And most importantly, it's one of our happy little bubbles when we read what you've written. So leave us some stars.